I've got a whole big pile of articles I'd like to like to hit, starting with um, a feature piece they did in, it was a cover story actually in, in New Scientist, about how it was <laughs> that natural spaces are essential for our physical and mental health, and if they're designed in the right way, they can help biodiversity to thrive too. This just in, Pope Catholic. I don't know. I'm glad that, <laughs> I'm glad that somebody's realized that having greenery and natural space around you is a healthy thing. I myself am a great believer in, in lots of greenery and, and, and open space and, and a natural setting. Although I was somewhat taken aback when a friend came to visit a year ago, walked through the house, took a look at my rather sizable backyard, and, and commented, all this space when you're only one person living here? And I thought to myself, yeah, well, unlike you, I'm spending a lot of time fixing carbon. I think I've got a couple of tons in my compost pile alone. And I guess it, could, it gets down to this issue of like how much space should people have for greenery around them to be optimal. I don't know that I have an answer for that, but I, I do know that during the COVID crisis, I'm grateful for the fact that I fortunately was not cooped up in an apartment. Everyone really likes to point out that unfortunately he was. To which I would add, yes, but he could always come down and visit and hang out in my spacious backyard which would, which he does on occasion and i would also look at very green foresty things on the internet while i was cooped up oh good idea yeah good plan <laughs> all right here's another piece that has me scratching my head a little bit um it's also from new Scientist, and notes that aircraft create a web of contrail clouds which we all know but they're claiming warms our planet a surprisingly large amount and they were talking about how we could have planes take various measures to reduce contrails. I'm a little skeptical about this because, as I recall, during the crisis during 9-11, during which airplanes across the country were grounded for three days, that my understanding was the studies showed that that lack of contrails increased temperatures, meaning that aviation is is a global warming fighter. But I, I, I could be mistaken this piece certainly implies that um, that contrails are like cirrus clouds and that they let most of the sunlight through but then block it when it's trying to escape. I mean, everybody is familiar with the fact that, you know, a cloudy night is a warmer night than a clear night. But I don't know. I used to be able to reliably tell when riding out on a motorcycle when I had passed under a contrail because the temperature would drop a degree. I mean, it was noticeable. You know, when you're on a motorcycle, you can tell the difference of one degree Fahrenheit or, or certainly two. And, you know, many times I'd stop, feel cold, look up, see that the sun was being blocked by a contrail. So I'm, I'm really confused by this. If somebody has an answer to this, drop us a line. If you're an atmospheric scientist, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com and educate us. Educate all of us. 
Now, we were talking uh, in our first segment a bit about some misleading data that surrounds the whole so-called housing crisis in the Bay Area. So let's do a, let's do a follow-up on the so-called opioid crisis, in this case also in the Bay Area, because it turns out The Economist magazine reported on um, a study done in the Bay Area about drug overdoses. The punchline is, according to the magazine, that changes to drug markets explain why more people in San Francisco died of overdoses in 2020 than were killed by COVID-19. Now, it is noted, according to the CDC, that over 90,000 Americans died by drug overdose in the 12 months from October 20th, 2019 to 2020, which is a 30% increase on the previous year. And that is more than the number of people killed in car crashes, 42,000, or by guns, 44,000 combined. Roughly 55,000 of those who overdosed died from synthetic opioids such as fentanyl. That is a 57% jump over one year. Now, it is noted that the roots of the epidemic, well, many note that the roots of the epidemic can be traced to prescription painkillers such as Oxycontin introduced in 1996. But they sort of vaguely note that in the 15 or 20 years it took for a prescription opioid crisis to turn into an illicit opioid crisis, the geography of the epidemic remained stable, meaning that many had hoped fentanyl, which is up to 100 times more potent than morphine per gram, would not spread beyond the East Coast and Appalachia, where it has wreaked the most havoc. Users in the Western U.S. have historically preferred black tar heroin, which was not mixed well with fentanyl, to the white powder heroin, which was found in the East. But it turns out that the scourge has now found its way to the West, too. In San Francisco, more than twice as many people died from an accidental drug overdose last year as from COVID-19. The city's chief medical examiner estimates that fentanyl was detected in the bloodstream of nearly 73% of those who had died from overdose. Now, we think there's a lot more to this story, and, and there's hints of it here in the Economist piece, which says that fentanyl spread is as much about geopolitics and organized crime as it is about local drug markets. China is the biggest supplier of the chemicals used to make fentanyl, and until recently the drug was often mailed directly to the U.S. in small parcels. In 2019, the Trump administration lobbied the Chinese government to ban the illicit production and sale of fentanyl, at least directly. Afterwards, According to Matthew Donahue, Deputy Chief of Operations for the DEA, direct shipments virtually stopped. Fentanyl did not disappear, however. Chinese producers simply took the long way around shipping the chemicals to Mexico for the drug cartels, which are already trafficking heroin, also meth and cocaine, to then make the move up across the border. The amount of fentanyl seized by Mexican security forces nearly quintupled between 2019 and 2020, Once across the border, the cartels, Sinaloa and Jalisco New Generation, chief among them, use their established networks to distribute the drugs throughout the United States. The piece goes on to note that it's not just the route that fentanyl travels that has changed. The drug is also shape-shifting. In Mexico, fentanyl is pressed into counterfeit pills made to resemble painkillers like Oxycontin or Hydrocodone. And just two milligrams of fentanyl can be fatal. So a pure fentanyl pill or one pressed with the drug like heroin or cocaine can be deadly many times over. When the DEA tested sample pills from drug seizures between January and March 4th of 2019, 27% contained a lethal dose of fentanyl. Let that sink in a little bit. 
Counterfeit pills are great business for the drug cartels. Fentanyl can be produced at one one hundred the cost of heroin. Keith Humphreys of Stanford University said the cartels don't need a field of poppy plants. They just need a basement, house, or small warehouse. The piece concludes by noting that it it would be great to think that the problem could be fixed by choking off supply. Yeah, we've seen how well the, the, the war on drugs has fared in choking off supply since Nixon initiated it in 1970. But they note that one constant of border policy on this and previous administrations is that fentanyl can always find a way in. Now, I want to pause and reverse tape and ask how it can be, well, this is usually glossed over in discussions, that once opioids became more in use, and by the way, I would remind all listeners that everybody in California who wasn't a pathologist or I think a radiologist, anybody who treated live patients was required a couple decades ago to take 12 units, and that's quite a lot, 12 units of continuing medical education on how to deal with pain because in America, doctors were under-treating pain, grossly under-treating pain. In the wake of a lawsuit from a family that sued a doctor, for inadequately caring for their loved one who died in pain unnecessarily, the powers that be decided something needed to be done about it. And something was done about it. And for a while, it was easier to get prescription medications. The pendulum has now swung the other way rather profoundly, meaning that a lot of people, many of whom, I dare say, may need regular pain relief through the use of opiates, now instead get their drugs illegally, including what we're talking about here, you know, fentanyl pressed into pill form brought up from Mexico by cartels. In another article on opioids in America, also in The Economist, they noted that when OxyContin was reformulated in 2010 to make it more difficult to abuse, because druggies like the rush you get from, uh, you know, a sudden infusion of a large amount of drugs, OxyContin was a time-released formulation that they made it even more time-released, meaning harder to uh, crush up and just snort, etc. They noted many Americans who were addicted switched to heroin and eventually fentanyl. That piece noted that in 2019, a team of economists rigorously evaluating OxyContin's impact concluded that its introduction and marketing explained a substantial share of overdose deaths over 20 years. Well, that team of economists may have concluded that I'm I'm not sure they're right. Well, or that they're maybe they're they're not quite slanting it right. Yes, I'm sure the more widespread use of OxyContin led more people to use the drug. And yes, I'm sure among them many of those became just flat out abusers and when they reformulated it so it was harder to abuse, they just went back to what they always had done, buy street drugs. But if one takes a look at other countries where opiates have been made more, not less legal, more legal and available. One will quickly note that there are not large numbers of deaths taking place because if the truth be told, opiates, pharmaceutical grade quality opiates, not, you know, fentanyl made in the basement, are in fact less dangerous than many other drugs. That's just a medical fact. And in terms of how addicting they are, I can tell you that yours truly conducted a study while a medical student and resident, study of inpatients, study of heroin abusers, who are inpatients because, well, if you're a heroin abuser, you wind up in the hospital quite a lot. Things, things don't always go well. But I, I, I conducted a survey among the heroin addicts I treated over the, over the many years and asked them, what's easier to quit, do you think? Cigarettes or heroin? 
My unofficial poll came back, I would say, I don't have exact numbers, but I would say three to one, at least two to one, and closer probably to three to one from the heroin addicts saying, oh, I can give up the heroin, sure, but I can't quit smoking. Smoking, we would remind you, is associated with 500,000 deaths a year, every year, and has been for many, many decades. How does that square against your 90,000 opioid-related deaths? Dr. Dean Adell, who was a great radio doctor back, back in the day, used to comment on his program all of the time that all of the illegal drug use deaths that took place in America year after year were a tiny fraction a tiny fraction of the numbers that could be chalked up to alcohol and tobacco. I mean, like less than a tenth. I'm sure even with the opioid crisis, you know, it's, it's, it's probably less than a fifth. But that's all I'm going to say on that topic today. I think I'm worn it out. You know, for this show and, and last show, we, we, we've scarcely mentioned COVID, which fortunately, as we speak, is being reined in in America thanks to the widespread use of vaccines. And also the standard epidemiologic methods of preventing its spread, which have continued, like people isolating, people wearing masks, people keeping a safe distance between themselves, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of the folks who are, you know, rabid opponents of masks are are grasping this uh, relaxation that's taking place thanks to the CDC's recommendations and saying, yes, it's time we got rid of those masks. That, friends, is a little premature. I, I've, I've got a friend uh, who's spoken on this program before on this very topic, actually, of, of COVID, who lives down in Orange County and notes that routinely throughout the entire epidemic, people would show up unmasked. They had some lame excuse or that they'd been vaccinated, and, and it, was just, it was just nonsense. They just were against, philosophically against wearing a mask. And a lot of these folks are still philosophically against wearing a mask, whether they've been vaccinated or not, and are going to continue to spread the bug. There is one other medically related topic that makes my head spin. I think I just need to address however briefly, which comes from the fact that it's becoming understood that, well, let's just say that doubts are growing about therapies proposed for gender dysphoric children. In what this correspondent would have to regard as startling episodes of quackery, Many in the medical profession have elected to treat pediatric patients who have gender issues, and they have treated them with drugs to block the onset of puberty. These are often followed by hormones to promote development of physical characteristics of the opposite sex as part of an approach called affirmation therapy. The economist has pointed out that those skeptical of affirmation therapy point out a couple of problems. Evidence is lacking and what exists is not reassuring. A review by Sweden's health authorities in 2019 found little research, mostly of poor quality. Britain's National Institute for Health and Care Excellence found that puberty blockers did little to dispel gender dysphoria or improve patients' mental health, though they did not make feelings worse, they said. Moreover, existing studies suggest that without intervention, most Children with gender dysphoria end up reconciled to their natal sex as adults. Let me just say that one again. Existing studies suggest that without intervention, most children with gender dysphoria end up reconciled to their natal sex as adults. There is also evidence, notes the magazine, the drugs may cause serious harm. For example, one study at Oxford showed that 
bone mineral density, which usually rises sharply in puberty, but in 24 patients who had been prescribed puberty blockers, a third had bone density levels in the bottom 2% of their age groups. One patient who began puberty blockers at age 12 suffered four fractures by the age of 16. At any rate, the punchline in The Economist was the combination of rising prescriptions and flimsy evidence leads some doctors to fear medical scandal is brewing. Gee, you think? Say that the only scandal would be to change course. Anyway, enough said on that. We'll have to return to that on another day. Let's talk about a subject that has dominated too much of our discussions over the past year or so, Donald J. Trump. There was an attempted coup in the United States on January 6th based on false premises, which was that the election had been stolen. Donald Trump was the cheerleader of QAnon and other supporters who believed the nonsense, which was presented without evidence, that there'd been a massive outpouring of support for Donald Trump, who won the election handily, but that somehow it had been stolen from him. Although uh, hundreds of people swarmed our nation's capital in an attempt to take legislators hostage and stop the process of the certification of the electoral votes, not too many of them have been tried yet. Yes, something like 400, I understand, are moving through the courts. But the greater question is, why hasn't Donald Trump been indicted for inciting a riot? Well, the answer appears to be that uh, Joe Biden and his administration just doesn't seem to have the guts to do so. They know it's going to cause a political firestorm, and they just want to avoid a political firestorm. Never mind the fact that if in 2022 the Senate and House flip back to Republicans, and if in 2024 Donald Trump is again the candidate on the Republican side and gets elected, we're in some trouble here in this country. Anyway, the federal government's inaction, which is rather startling, um, has caused people to focus on other jurisdictions which have an ability to prosecute Donald Trump for numerous and assorted crimes. Jane Mayer has a piece in the March 22nd issue of The New Yorker looking at Cyrus Vance Jr. He is the Manhattan District Attorney who is leading the first and larger of two known probes into potential criminal misconduct by Donald Trump. The second we would note, was opened in February by the county prosecutor in Georgia who's investigating Trump's efforts to undermine the state's election results. I like the way that phrasing, undermine the state's election results. Yeah, can you find me just 11,000 more votes? Uh, you know, then we can say that I won. You'd have to admit that is undermining the election results, that approach. Jane Mayer notes in the piece that before Trump was elected back in 2016, he promised to release his tax records, as every other modern president has done, and he repeated that promise after taking office. Instead, he went to extraordinary lengths to hide the documents. The subpoena will finally give legal authorities a clear look at the former president's opaque business empire, helping them to determine whether he committed any financial crimes. After Cyrus Vance's victory at the Supreme Court, he released a typically buttoned-up statement. The work continues. Now, we should note the beginning of the piece explains that the Supreme Court has ordered former President Donald Trump to comply with the subpoena for nearly a decade's worth of private financial records, and apparently a lot of them have already been obtained. Now, back when Donald Trump was president, his lawyers argued that presidents were immune from criminal prosecution. In fact, they were immune from criminal investigation. 
Trump's appellate counsel, William Consovi, asserted that Trump couldn't be prosecuted even if he fulfilled one of the most notorious campaign boasts. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any votes. Cyrus Vance and his team rejected that claim, insisting that nobody's above the law. This piece also notes somewhat uh, scarily that Cyrus Vance plans to retire from the DA's office on December 31st of this year, meaning the work that he needs to get done, well, he just needs to put some speed on here. Jane Mayer notes that Vance's office could well be the only operable break on Trump's remarkable record of impunity. He survived two impeachments, the investigation by special counsel Robert Mueller, half a dozen bankruptcies, 26 accusations of sexual misconduct, and an estimated 4,000 lawsuits. And his successor, President Joe Biden, so far seems to prefer the Department of Justice simply turn the page. George Conway, a lawyer and a Trump critic who is married to the former president's advisor, Kellyanne Conway, has said, Trump is a man who's gotten away with everything his entire life. He's an affront to the rule of law and to all law-abiding citizens. In office, Trump often treated the law as a political weapon, using the Justice Department as a tool for targeting enemies. Now he's pitted against a DA who regards the law as the politically blind foundation of democracy. As Conway put it, For Trump, the law is a cudgel. For Cyrus Vance, it's what holds us together as a civilization. And that's why people who thumb their noses at it have to be prosecuted. If they aren't, you're taking a big step toward a world where that is acceptable. Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohn, who's currently in jail for making hush money payments to to, uh, Stormy Daniels, a crime for which Trump is yet to be indicted, has noted that it is the Vance investigation that he thinks causes Trump to lose sleep. Beside the horror of actually having to open up eight years of his personal income statements, Vance is accumulating a vast roadmap of criminality for which Trump must answer. Michael Cohn, for his part, has been cooperating with Vance's office and believes that Trump's children and Alan Weisselberg, the Trump Organization's chief financial officer, are also under legal scrutiny. Now, Alan Weisselberg is not talking to the press, but uh, Jane Mayer was able to get some words from Weisselberg's former daughter-in-law, who divorced his son some time back. She noted for the piece that uh, when someone works for the Trump Organization, only a small part of your salary is reported. They pay you with apartments and other stuff as a control tactic, so you can't leave. They own you. You have to do whatever crap they ask. And I can't resist not... And I cannot resist an anecdote that she served up for the piece as follows. She told Jane Mayer that when she first met Trump, that was before she was married, at Alan Weisberg's modest house in Wontaw on Lone Island, that day the Weisselberg family was sitting shiva for Alan's mother. Donald Trump shows up in a limousine and blurts out, this is where my CFO lives? It's embarrassing. Then, Jennifer recalled, Trump showed various Shiva attendees photographs of naked women with him on a yacht. After that, she said, he started hitting on me. Jennifer claimed that Alan Weisselberg, instead of being offended on her behalf, humored his boss. He didn't stand up for me. Asked about this, Weisselberg's lawyer, Mary Mulligan, said, no comment. Anyway, in other healthy democracies, it has sometimes happened that the former president or leader of the country was prosecuted for crimes. Earlier this month, former French President Nicolas Sarkozy was found guilty of corruption and influence peddling by a court in Paris and sentenced to prison. 
The previous French president, Jacques Chirac, was convicted in 2011 of embezzlement and misusing public funds. Silvio Berlusconi, the demagogic former prime minister of Italy, was forced to perform community service after his 2013 conviction for tax fraud. Here's the part that scares me, though. The article concludes by noting that an NYU professor believes there's much to be learned from Berlusconi. Italy initially voted him out of office in 2006, well after his corruption was exposed. But his center-left successors in office did little to address his misconduct. Two years later, they were defeated, and Berlusconi returned to power for another three years. A new, an NYU professor commented, If we have the chance to make a strong statement that the rule of law matters, and we fail, the message is that these strong men can get back in power. That's the lesson for us. And that's what scares this correspondent. All right, there's so much more in the backlog that we have not uh, debulked here for today's show, but we, you know, we covered some ground. I do want to note that I saw a really hair-raising documentary on, uh, I don't know, Netflix, YouTube, one of those. I don't know which one it was. It was titled Seaspiracy and talked about what is going on in our, mo- in our oceans as corporations are strip mining the sea of fish. The time I got through watching this thing, which, which outlined just how bad it is, and it's very bad, I was ready to say, you know, forget this idea of giving up eating beef. We should eat beef instead of eating fish. And no, I'm not currently endorsing that position, but holy cow, we got some things to talk about regarding that documentary and a few others out there. But we are out of time, doggone it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We expect to bring you a show fairly soon. Rather than this, uh, these large month-long gaps that have been uh, the norm of late, we hope so. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. And I, as Dennis Miller used to like to say, am out of here.